How are facts established? Consensus? Pop culture? The New York Times bestseller list? Uh, Do we need to see something firsthand in order for it to be true? Do we determine facts or do they transcend our opinions and preferences? Maybe only science or mathematics determine facts, but then where would that leave us with history? There is one thing that determines fact, reality. Reality, or what actually was or is. Reality is shaped not by preferences, but by facts. Now, I could tell you that I was born April 9th, 1979, and that would be true. And you may or may not believe me. Uh, Seeing you weren't there, and I was hardly coherent, uh, I can't definitively prove that to you. Can't do it. But there are many, many good reasons to believe that I'm 35, including the back pain. No, I'm just... On April 9th, 1413, Henry V was crowned King of England at Westminster Abbey. None of us were there. It cannot be absolutely proven, but there's no good reason available to to doubt the coronation. On April 9th, 1865, Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of North Virginia to Ulysses S. Grant in a courthouse in Virginia, ending the Civil War. None of us were there. We can't prove that the Civil War has ended, but there's no good reason to doubt it. We have evidence That it is finished. We could go on and on through history, but the point I'm trying to make is that there are many great historical facts to believe because of overwhelming support. Yet at the end of the day, all history, even the modern day news that you see on TV or read in the paper, takes faith or trust in sources because we weren't there If fallible science or mathematics is our only source of discerning what is true, then we will simply be the skeptic of all skeptics, and there's hardly anything to believe then. The most significant barrier to faith in Christ is not the scarcity of evidence. It's the rigidity and rebellion of the human heart. We'll find any excuse to justify our actions in order to live the way we want. Sin is the barrier. And the only thing powerful enough to override the human heart is the grace of God released in the gospel. So today, I'd like to challenge that um, uh, suppression of truth that that is in all of us, really, with the facts of the most astonishing story that was ever told, the historical and life-changing gospel. Facts don't change people. The grace of God does through the facts. We must be frequently reminded of the gospel. Keep in mind, Paul is writing to Corinthians, the, the church in Corinth. There are Christians Paul calls them brothers in verse 1 and the church of God and saints earlier in chapter 1. And Paul is reminding these Christians of the gospel that was preached to them. 
He writes in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, then in verse 2, and by which you are being saved. They received the gospel through preaching, were standing in the gospel, and were being saved by the gospel. And Paul reminds them of that. In an article by Tom Schultz entitled, Four Major Reasons People Avoid Church, The second reason he gives is people don't want to be lectured. Many people avoid church because of preaching. But that is peculiar considering what preaching really is and the power and joy of it. Preaching is euangelisimen, a declaration of good news, of the best news of God's salvation. Paul boldly shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with these people so they could stand firm in it, be joyful in it, receive life and power in it, and be saved in it. And that's as good as it gets. Preaching is not lecturing. It's not a talk. It's not even yelling at people. It's not an open conversation. It's not even primarily telling people what to do. Preaching is joyfully announcing what God has done and how we are to respond. The gospel is worth saying and the gospel is worth hearing. And might I add, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I read a helpful quote that said, the gospel is not only something we embrace at the beginning of the Christian life, but the source of strength throughout the Christian life. Christians need to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. Paul reminded the Corinthians of the gospel, and we need to be reminded of the gospel as well. We must also hold fast to the gospel in order to be saved. We must hold fast. Paul says in verse 2 that the gospel was the means by which they were being saved if They held fast to the word he preached to them. Paul said they were being saved. That's present tense. Now, aren't Christians saved? Past tense? Absolutely. We are born again. We trust in Christ. And our salvation is eternally secured and sealed, but it's not finished. Salvation must be worked out until the end, until we are fully and finally saved. Notice Paul adds a condition in verse 2. Take a look. If you hold fast to the word. That means we must continue believing. In Acts 27.40, the word for hold fast is used as a nautical term of a ship that is staying its course and heading to its destination. To be saved, we must stay on the course of the gospel. Otherwise, our faith is vain. It doesn't count. It's dead faith. Now, this is really important. For faith to be genuine, saving faith, it must hold fast to the gospel. Understand how this applies to millions of professing Christians in America. They assure themselves of salvation without, in fact, holding fast to the word of the gospel. Their lives are lived primarily off gospel course. Millions of professing Christians have no regard for the preached word 
of God. Yet they rest easy in a false assurance of that gospel. Faith is only saving if it endures. If it endures. Simon Kistemacher wrote, Faith must exhibit perseverance in the teachings and application of the gospel to be genuinely active. If this is not the case, says Paul, you have believed in vain. If we don't value the gospel, have we really received it? Are we standing in it and being saved by it if we don't hold fast to it? Jesus didn't die on the cross to be one of your priorities. He died on the cross to be the priority. We must know the gospel is most important. It's primary. Paul wrote in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, Paul received the superlative gospel, the high gospel. It came to him, it changed him, and then he delivered it to the Corinthians. He passed it along. The gospel was of first importance for Paul because of anything in the universe, the gospel is most important. Now, I've used the word gospel without defining it for you. What is the gospel? It's good news. It's good news. The best news. In verses 3 through 8, Paul gives probably the best summary of the gospel in all of Scripture. It's clear, it's concise, it's convicting. He summarizes and substantiates it. This is the gospel, my friends. This is the message that has overturned the world. This is the message that can transform your life. This is the hope of the world. This is the gospel. Starting in verse 3. May your ears and may your heart hear. Paul writes, For I have delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. The gospel is history. Indisputable fact Here are Paul's four elements, and we'll break each one down. Number one, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Number two, Christ was buried in a tomb. Number three, Christ was raised from the dead after three days, according to the Scriptures. And number four, Christ appeared alive to over 500 credible witnesses. Matthew Henry, a Puritan pastor and theologian, wrote in the early 18th century, Christ's death and resurrection are the very sum and substance of evangelical truth. When you add up the law, the history, the wisdom and poetry, the prophets, the gospels, the epistles, the central message of the Bible is not clean up your life. Be good. Try harder. Make better choices. Do more for God or anything remotely close to that. The sum of Scripture is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son. 
The sum total of the Bible is not what you should do for God, it's what God has already done for you. We begin with point one, verse three. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Sin is missing the bullseye, the moral bullseye, and we've all missed it. Every single one of us has shot wild arrows all around, not even hitting the target. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the moral marksman. Par excellence, never missing the bullseye of moral perfection. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are, yet was without sin. No sin. John said, in him there is no sin. So the question arises, they're our sins, why did Christ die for them? Sounds unjust. At the heart of the gospel is something called penal substitutionary atonement. And you're like, what? You know, that sounds theological. That sounds academic. That sounds like I'm reading it out of a book. And maybe I was. All right, it's vital for everybody to understand penal substitutionary atonement. This is not beyond you, so please don't turn me off. Listen, let me carefully explain it. Penal is simply punishment for a crime. Punishment for a crime. Substitution is someone taking another's place. And atonement is the means by which sins are removed and forgiven, and the justice of God completely satisfied. Penal substitutionary atonement. Add it up, and it's Jesus being punished for our sin in our place on the cross, absorbing the wrath and judgment of God meant for us, paying off our sin debt in full, and legally and finally justifying us before a holy God. You could put it another way. Christ becomes sin for us, absorbs the full wrath and judgment of God for us, gives his life to satisfy the justice of God and pay for us and reconciles us to God. This is grace. This is good news. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We were cursed. And so the question is, how does he remove the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Do you love him for that? Do you love him for that? That he became a curse for you? Carol Ruvolo is an author and speaker and in her book, A Believer's Guide to Spiritual Fitness, she writes about penal substitutionary atonement. Here's the quote, since Jesus is God, he is perfectly righteous and holy. God's perfect righteousness and holiness demand that sin be punished, and Jesus' perfect righteousness and holiness qualified him to bear the punishment for the sins of those who will be saved. Jesus is the only person who never committed a sin. Therefore, the punishment he bore when he died on the cross could be accepted by God as satisfaction of his justice in regard to the sins of others.
Carol continues, if someone you love commits a crime and is sentenced to die, you may offer to die in his place. However, if you have also committed crimes worthy of death, your death cannot satisfy the law's demands for your crimes and your loved ones. You can only die in his place if you are innocent of any wrongdoing. Since Jesus lived a perfect life, God's justice could be satisfied by allowing him to die for the sins of those who will be saved. Because God is perfectly righteous and holy, he could not act in love at the expense of his justice. By sending Jesus to die, God demonstrated his love by acting to satisfy his own justice. How was the justice of God satisfied? The brutal murder of Jesus Christ, his innocent and one and only son. Friends, when you put it all together, Jesus died for our sins in order to save us from the wrath of God. He died in your place so you could experience eternal joy and relationship with God. Romans 4.25 says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised, that's Easter, for our justification. That's good news. And notice that Paul said Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. One of the best reasons to believe that the Bible is true, and not just a bunch of fairy tales, and not just an ancient book, but powerfully true, is fulfilled prophecy. Things that were written way before were fulfilled, and the Bible called it every time. The Bible's never been wrong. Paul says according to the scriptures, as he's saying that, he's saying The epic event of the cross was written about before it ever happened. Did you know Genesis 3.15? Right there in the beginning of the Bible is a prophecy about Jesus. God told Satan, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, would you rather have your head crushed or break your ankle? I hope you'd answer the ankle. Satan bruised Jesus. He nipped at his heel, but Jesus crushed Satan's head in sweet victory through his death and resurrection. Genesis 3.15 is the gospel. Listen to what Isaiah prophesied years before Jesus in chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession intercession for the transgressors. That was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And yet Jesus, he fulfilled it all. That's what he did on the cross. That's what he accomplished. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, Christ was buried in a tomb. 
Paul leaves no doubt that Christ was actually and physically dead. They placed his corpse in a tomb. He was not sleeping, acting, or in a coma. He was dead. Now, some people believe what's called the swoon theory. Perhaps you've heard of this before, which suggests that Jesus was not actually dead when he was removed from the cross, but had only passed out. And if you dig into Islam, you will see that there are variations of this within the Islamic faith. He was just in a coma. He had just passed out. He wasn't dead. And after being placed in the tomb, he revived, rolled the stone away by himself, and escaped through the Roman guards. Highly improbable, but some intelligent people believe this theory. It is absolutely certain that Jesus Christ died. Here's some proof. Jesus was badly beaten and hung pierced on the cross for over six hours. We are told Jesus stopped breathing and that a Roman centurion confirmed that fact. A crowd of witnesses uh, were surrounding him and, and saw his death and left the scene, as the Bible tells us, beating their chests. Pilate ordered his legs to be broken so he would suffocate and die because in crucifixion they would push up so that they could get a breath and then rest. Push up, if you break their legs, they can't and they suffocate to death. And so they ordered Jesus' legs to be broken along with the other thieves. He was already dead. They, they never broke any of his bones. Now if he was still alive, they would have been in direct violation of Pilate a ruler and governor of Rome. They stabbed his side with a spear and blood and water came out. Joseph of Arimathea courageously went before Pilate and asked for Jesus' corpse, which Pilate granted only after confirming that Jesus had died. Joseph and Nicodemus spent time wrapping the body of Jesus and laying him in the tomb using about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to wrap the body in. They would have noticed if he was still breathing. They sealed the tomb with a stone and set a Roman guard. What a colossal mistake of Pilate, the Roman soldiers, the crowd, and Joseph and Nicodemus if Jesus was still alive. It's laughable. Truth is, Jesus died, he was buried. Number three, Christ was raised from the dead after three days, according to the scriptures. Jesus said he would, and the Old Testament said the Messiah would. Years before Jesus, the prophet Hosea wrote this, after two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. How is that prophecy fulfilled? Through Christ's resurrection, Jonah 1.17 and chapter 2 verse 1. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now Matthew 20 verse 40 references Jonah. This is what Matthew writes. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah and the big fish is not about Jonah and the big fish primarily. It points forward to something, to the death, burial, and resurrection of our King Jesus Christ. This was prophecy fulfilled. Along with Old Testament prophecy, Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
and he was talking about raising his body from the dead. Outside of the Bible, the most compelling material evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is the empty tomb. No one can find the body of the most famous man of history. And they know where he died and where he was buried. No body. Where is the body of Jesus? In his article titled Evidence for the Resurrection, Josh McDowell gave six convincing historical facts surrounding the resurrection. Number one, the Roman seal on the tomb was broken. That seal carried the authority of the empire of Rome. You don't mess with the seal, but yet it was broken. Who's got guts enough to do that? Apparently, an angel does, which was terrifying to the soldiers. Fact number two, the tomb is empty. Paul Althaus said, quote, the resurrection could have not been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day, for a single hour, if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned, end quote. How easy it would have been to totally debunk the Christian religion by just going to the tomb and showing the body. There he is. He just died. This Christian thing is it's nothing. They couldn't do that. They couldn't debunk Christianity. His body's not there because he is still alive. Fact number three, the really big stone was moved. This stone probably weighed between one and two tons. I don't think Jesus is moving that from inside the tomb. Fact number four, as, as if he didn't die, I've got to be careful with that. Jesus has the power to just say, stone, not be there anymore, all right? But a man, just a man, who died and was in the tomb, does not have the power. No hospital or anything. He was bleeding and he's moving the tomb. Highly unlikely. Fact number four, the Roman guards fled. That was unheard of. Something epic would have had to drive those soldiers away because they could have been burned alive for abandoning their post by Rome. Fact number five, the linen shroud was still in the tomb. Josh McDowell says the clothes were undisturbed in form and position, like a cocoon with no body in it. And there it was. And fact number six is our next point. There's only one reasonable conclusion. The tomb is empty. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is still alive. And everything written about him in the Old and New Testament is completely true. It is no mistake to describe, or it is a mistake rather, to describe Christianity as just a blind leap. Go ahead and jump in. Doesn't matter about the facts. Just go ahead and believe. It is faith, and faith is a gift from God, but faith is not alone. It is accompanied by abundant, verifiable, historical evidence. That's God's gracious gift to us, an apologetic gift to defend the Christian faith. There's evidence everywhere. It's overwhelming. Many Christians overlook how persuasive then verses five through eight really are. Number four, Christ appeared alive to over 500 credible witnesses. Look at verses five through eight again. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared to me. Paul used the Greek word ophthe four times in verses five through eight, meaning he was seen. 
he appeared. People were interacting with him, looking at the risen Christ Jesus. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is unquestionable. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by the 12. He was seen by the crowd of over 500 people. He was seen by James. He was seen by the apostles. He was seen by Paul. You get the idea. What verses 4 through 8 communicate is that Jesus' appearance after the, the resurrection was very public. Not a private hallucination of some crazy people. Two or three witnesses stand in court. But over 500 witnesses, some of whom were close friends, that's just flat out conclusive. That ends it. It stops there. He's alive. Paul wrote this letter when most eyewitnesses were still alive. So think about that. Paul's writing these truth claims about Jesus Christ, and most of the people that saw him alive are still living, so you could go and check all the evidence and check the facts with those people that were still living. Anyone could have researched the claims in Jerusalem themselves. The empty tomb is verified fact. And notice how careful and honest Paul is in verse 6. You can just trust a guy like this because he writes, though some have fallen asleep. He wants to make sure that he's just putting in there a little. Now, now most of them are still alive, but, but I must say there are a few that have fallen asleep. They've died and they're not around anymore. But still the, the big chunk of the crowd still still living. It's just an honest guy. Dr. Luke wrote in Acts 1-3, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The word for proofs here means evidence that removes all reasonable doubt. So when Dr. Luke uh, writes that, it's like, look, there is no reason to doubt this. He, 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 he did so much to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that he was alive. There is no gospel like this gospel. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is historical and life-changing fact. Are you having ham today for lunch? Are you taking the dreaded family picture before or after lunch. Do you know what I'm talking about? Line up everyone and the kids are like, Dad, what is... no, actually that was just me. I don't want to take the picture. I was crying. Perhaps you're doing an Easter egg hunt for the kids later. That could be exciting. Well, hide it under there. And then maybe you forget about them and you know, six weeks down the road, what is that awful smell? Are you planning on giving the kids a a little Easter basket with that fake, gaudy, ugly grass stuff and then you got to dig to the bottom to get the multicolored jelly beans that really aren't that great anyway and you're like, oh look, a rabbit, a chocolate rabbit, is that that what we're going to do this afternoon? Are you heading into a busy week? I mean, how are your weeks going, right? The temptation is to leave here today and to live the, the same way you always have lived. Entering in tomorrow with the same perspective that you came in today with. You may fully agree that Jesus is alive. So what? It still may not change anything about your life or the choices that you make moving forward. And sadly, that might be true for you. That's probable that a good handful of you will do just that. Leave unchanged. Millions of people say they believe this, but it has no real impact on their lives 
and daily choices. And I'm here to tell you, you can be different. You don't have to leave that way. If the gospel is true and Jesus is still alive, is living life as you always have really a viable option? It's insane. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, the gospel is calling you to find your greatest joy, your greatest pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things. There is a way for you to leave here today completely changed, to leave a completely new person. Jesus made that new life possible for you. Here's how. It's super simple. Number one, you must be born again. God must change your heart. Has he? Has he really changed your heart? Number two, you must repent of your sins. That means you admit and confess your sin to God and you hate it. You despise it enough to commit to persistently reject it for the rest of your life without looking back. Repentance is a lifestyle of saying no to sin. Are you ready to live like that? And if inside you're honest, in the honest moments of your life, you're like, I'm not willing to give up that and that and that for Jesus, then you haven't. And you're not saved and the wrath of God is on you. But if you look at your sin and say, I hate that, Sure, I, I, I want the sweet taste sometimes, but overall, I know that it's just destroying me. And I hate it, and I just want help to move beyond it. It's probably evidence God is flat out moving in your life. And he wants you to finally commit to say, I'm done. I'm done with that. I'm living for him. He is what I want. If he is not what you want, please don't walk out of here and deceive yourself that you and God are okay. Number three, you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You receive Christ by faith and commit your life to following him everywhere he leads you. You joyfully submit to his lordship in your life. Are you ready to follow Jesus instead of sin? That's that's like one of the biggest questions you gotta ask yourself. The response to the gospel is really simple to understand. Nothing fancy. No tricks here, folks. Jesus did say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is quite clear. You cannot have your sin and follow him too. Does not work. If you believed in Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And I want to ask you a question. If you believe that God worked in your heart today, because this is not fancy, one through three, it's got to be true of you. That's That's true of Christians. Notice it says nothing about a perfect life. It just says born again, repent of the sin, trust in Christ alone for salvation, and fruit of that is a committed life to follow him everywhere. This is, not, this is not hard. If you believe God worked in your heart today, 
Would you talk to me after the service? Would you say, you're you're hitting on the head, the nail on the head, exactly what is true of me. I I want that. Because here's why I want you to talk to us. Because either talk to me or one of the other elders, because we are extremely serious and excited about helping you grow and mature in Christ. That's what we want to you. Why? Because we love you and we want you to experience the highest joy, your highest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things. That, that's what our game is. We have nothing to hide. That's what we're trying to do here. That's what this is all about. We, we want you to be happy in God. So talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Say, I want to know more about how that works out in my life so that we can help you pursue your highest joy in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are serious words from your scripture. They are true. They are validated by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter is the key to our eternal freedom and happiness. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will impact someone this morning and will change someone's life. I wonder who here is just getting beat up and, and, and just getting morally kicked around. They've failed so many times that, that they're just, there's this tension inside of them and they don't know what to do. I pray that you help their mind and their heart to turn on this morning, to see the glories of the gospel. It's not complicated, God. It's deep, it's rich, but it's not complicated. Help us to look, all of us. Unbelievers, believers the same. Look to the cross and trust in Christ. And I pray, God, that if someone has been changed today, that they would let us know that we can help them, nurture them, help them to mature and grow in their faith so that they could be pursuing, staying on course of pursuing their highest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ and that they wouldn't be wasting their lives on frivolous pleasures that will not satisfy them and will not befriend them and will stab them in the back. So God, help Jesus to be so real for us this Easter that we leave here changed and if we knew Christ when we came in here that we would leave changed more motivated to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know I can't make it happen, so God, I plead with you that you make it happen by your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.